Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I'm pleased to be with Carl Weinberg, Adjunct Associate Professor of History and Senior Lecturer in the College of Arts and Sciences, Indiana University, Bloomington, Go Hoosiers, to talk about his new book, Red Dynamite, Creationism, Culture Wars, and Anti-Communism in America. In Red Dynamite, Carl Weinberg argues that creationism's tenacious hold on American public life depended on culture war politics inextricably embedded in religion. Many Christian conservatives were convinced that evolutionary thought promoted immoral and even bestial social, sexual, and political behavior. The fruits of subscribing to Darwinism were, in their mind, a dangerous rearrangement of God-given standards and the unsettling of traditional hierarchies of power. Despite claiming to focus exclusively on science and religion, creationists were practicing politics. Their anti-communist campaign, often infused with conspiracy theory, gained power from the fact that Marxist founders, the early Bolshevik leaders, and their American allies were staunch evolutionists. Using the scope's monkey trial as a starting point, Red Dynamite traces the politically explosive union of Darwinism and communism over the next century. Across those years, social evolution was the primary target of creationism, and their quote-unquote ideas have consequence strategy instilled fear that shaped the contours of the American culture war. By taking the anti-communist arguments of creationists seriously, Weinberg reveals a neglected dimension of anti-evolutionism and illuminates a source of creationist movements' continuing strength. Carl, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so glad to be here. Great. Well, this book was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I have such an interest in creationism, intelligent design, anti-evolution arguments, and I thought this was an amazing uh, additional insight into the political aspect of the movement. So before we get into the content of the book, can you tell me a bit about your educational background and the academic background that led to the research and writing of this particular book? Sure. It was a long road between my original educational background and this book. I I was a history major at Brown University, and I did have some interest in the history of religion, although that certainly wasn't my primary focus. But as I think back on it, there were two projects I did or two books that I came in contact with uh, that really did shape my thinking. Well, I read a book by Emery Battis called Saints and Sectaries about the antinomians, about Anne Hutchinson in Puritan, Massachusetts. And he made this argument that there was a connection between the economic interests uh, and the activities of the people who were drawn to her movement um, and their theology. Uh, And I found that really intriguing. And I ended up writing a paper about it and getting involved in the undergraduate history journal through that work. The other uh, the other book uh, was Salem Possessed uh, by uh, Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum that in its own way makes a similar kind of argument about the connection between this phenomenon of witchcraft, which uh, witchcraft accusation, which might seem entirely disconnected from the real world. But in fact, they made this very powerful argument using this amazing map uh, that there was a correlation between the uh, people who were accused of witchcraft and the accusers, and in each case, 
their connections or disconnections with the market economy that was emerging that was emerging in Massachusetts right around that same time. And so I, I think that in in a strange way set me on a course to explore the materialist foundations of religion, which in my own way I've I've done in this book. So that you might say that was a starting point. I'll also say that there are a couple of other things that led me in this direction. Uh, my working graduate school was primarily in labor history, and um, my dissertation was about coal miners in Illinois during World War One. I. I managed to publish that book many years later in 2005 as Labor, Loyalty, and Rebellion. Uh, but uh, in, in doing so, I became acquainted uh, with some anti-socialist activists who were religiously inclined. They were conservative Catholics, and that got me thinking about uh, these connections as well. And then finally, in my first teaching job at North Georgia College in Dahlonega, Georgia, um, I started teaching a course on the controversy over evolutionary science without having had a, a solid background in the history of science or religion. Uh, but I was thankfully allowed to do this by my department head. And I, I, I was sparked to do this by a controversy that occurred in Cobb County, Georgia, where the Board of Education there decided to put disclaimer stickers on their biology textbooks saying that evolution is a theory, not a fact, and therefore should be approached uh, with a uh, with, with caution. <laughs> and um, so that really got me interested in, in, in the fact that this was a live controversy and there were real stakes involved in terms of people's education. And I guess the last thing I would add is that the specific a communist socialist connection to evolution uh, was something that I learned about in my own experience in the socialist movement as a political activist after college, learning that, in fact, there were socialists out there who did indeed promote evolutionary science. And so one of the arguments in the book is that the Christian conservatives who have made this argument over the last hundred years are not entirely crazy. They're not, they're not making this up although there, there are some distortions and some, some fantasy involved in some of the things they've argued, there's a kernel of truth. That's, that's so true. I, I, I remember when that Cobb County incident was occurring because uh, Penn and Teller's show did a, a whole interview with uh, members of the Board of Education. So you speak of the material background of religion. You speak of the kind of labor history that you've been interested in. Tell us a bit about, in the beginning of your book, John Scopes, the monkey trial, and the connection of Dayton, Tennessee, and that trial to labor activism. Right. This was something that I really enjoyed learning about. And uh, when I started the project, knew only the tiniest bit about because it was well known that Scopes was the son of a socialist that's been written about in any number of works about the trial. But no one had ever really explored that any further. And uh, so in part prompted by the series editors at Cornell who wanted me to do a little bit more of the Scopes trial, I did investigate that and I was amazed by what I, I found. Um, in, a, in a number of ways. For one thing, um, it's not just that it's not just that John Scopes's father, Thomas Scopes, was a socialist. He was quite an active and prominent one. He introduced Eugene Debs from the stage in Paducah, Kentucky, when they uh, were there. He headed up the local chapter of the Socialist Party as well as the Machinist Union. Uh, 
Um, but and uh, he raised John Scopes with a kind of socialist education about questions of war and politics and the Christian religion as well. So Scopes, the young Scopes, was very much influenced by his father. The town of Dayton, Tennessee, ended up being uh, fascinating as well because it was often acknowledged in passing that it was a coal mining town in decline. Uh, But as I looked further into it, I found that it was also a setting for some pretty intense labor activism, labor conflict, which sometimes got violent and involved dynamite charges uh, being set off, destroying property. I also found that uh, that part of Tennessee um, witnessed a, a major revolt against the convict lease system in the 1890s, and the Dayton miners were uh, very sympathetic to this movement. And it was a movement that uh, aimed to uh, uh, that aimed to undermine this convict lease system because it. Uh, was a real problem for labor solidarity and for uh, the labor union movement at the time. And because most convict uh, workers, although not all, were African-American coal miners, um, you know, who were essentially paid nothing and the coal companies would pay the state a fee for uh, making use of convict laborers. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, this was going on in many other places as well. And so I found that... uh, Dayton miners expressed sympathy, solidarity uh, with these rebels. Uh, They also formed a chapter of the United Mine Workers of America in Dayton. And again, this is a dimension of the story that really hasn't been told by historians. So you start to see that the real setting of the trial is not just this isolated southern town where, where people have backward ideas about evolution and science and so on, but a town that's really part of this nexus of an uh, in, in international economic system uh, that that has already featured some pretty intense conflict. In fact, there was a trial held there where the company, uh, the Dayton Coal and Iron, was uh, was sued by families of workers killed in a mine accident there, which was in, in in effect for the residents of Dayton. That was the first trial of the century, long before the Scopes trial ever happened. So when you when you start to see this. Uh, you, you start to understand how the broader story that I'm telling can be seen already in the in the Scopes trial. And the last piece of that um, is that on the first day of the trial, the Chattanooga Times published an article red baiting John Scopes as the son of a socialist raised in a quote unchristian environment. And so from the very start, the trial included that dimension of anti-communism and the linking of evolutionary science and communism. Again, this has been included, that fact has been included in some histories of the trial and the period, but nobody has elaborated on it. And of course, I've attempted to do that in the book. No, it was fascinating to me because I only know the trial again through that H.L. Mencken inspired, it's these backward idiot types, uh, his his kind of anti-egalitarian sentiment. So it was credible to read about the violent and radical history of Dayton, Tennessee. So speaking of dynamite that was used in the mines, can you tell me a bit about the, as you call it, a political logic or rhetoric of red dynamite that was employed by scientific creationists throughout the 20th century? George McCready Price was the one who first used this phrase. He was a creationist geologist from Canada who 
I call the godfather of young earth creationism. He was the first one in part because of his Seventh-day Adventist background to start making the argument that the earth was only 6,000 years old and to oppose evolution, to oppose evolutionary science on that basis. So he started making arguments in some of his early writings around the turn of the 20th century, linking evolution with various political and social evils, including socialism and communism and their alleged immoralities. But it was not until a 1925 book called The Predicament of Evolution, a slim volume uh, that was clearly written with the intent to reach a broader audience than some of his earlier works, where he uh, made the claim, and and the book was richly illustrated with drawings and photos and so on, who made the claim uh, that um, evolution and and Marxism were tightly linked together in a way that threatened to undermine morality and really all of Western civilization. And he made this argument uh, by pointing to an interview that was done with a quirky character I write about a little bit in the book uh, named uh, Book White, who was a congregational minister who was in fact a labor radical as well, a socialist who was kicked out of his church and he founded a church called the Church of Social Revolution. Uh, And uh, White was at one point interviewed by newspaper and was responding to uh, the notion that by training ministers, uh, he was in in effect part of the system and not doing enough to um, to fight for, for justice and, and, and for socialism. And he essentially said that teaching, that the teaching about uh, the real history of Christianity and how Jesus himself was a social rebel and implicitly about evolution as something that was real, which he was certainly a believer in. Uh, he said that these teachings together constituted social dynamite uh, that would blow up the whole apparatus of capitalist civilization. And so George McCready Price read that interview and seized on that and just re, re-coined that phrase as red dynamite. And so then uh, I've, I've used that in the book, that phrase red dynamite, to represent this claim that evolution and communism are linked together in a way that promotes immorality of all different kinds. In the book, I, in the introduction, I note that these alleged immoralities are almost always associated with either sex or death. That covers just about everything. And, and so it's been a, a, a series of very powerful claims because, of course, it, it gets to uh, these very um, deep uh, fears uh, that, that people have about uh, the effect of immorality on society and what, um, what may lie in wait for their children in the schools if they are taught they have uh, descended from animals. Uh, the, the, as the argument goes, if you teach them they descended from animals, they'll act like animals. And so Red Dynamite encapsulates that set of fears and claims, uh, starting with George McCready Price, but really going pretty much throughout the 20th century. And you also mention in Red Dynamite this notion of, of fruits or fruitistic argument. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I thought about calling the, the book Evolution's Evil Fruits at one point. That there's, there's too many metaphors here in, 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 in a sense. But yes, I mean, from Matthew 7, 15, the, 
the, the passage from Jesus's sermon on the Mount uh, about you shall judge them by their fruits uh, and, and this notion of evil fruits as demonstrating the, the negative effects of teaching people to think about themselves as descending from, uh, from a common ancestor with, with, with apes. Um, that, that is, uh, that if, uh, we, if we teach people, uh, these kinds of things, they'll act in certain ways and that the way we can most effectively and most validly judge the worth of an idea is in effect the way it makes you act. And that, that uh, connects with a phrase you read from the, the back, uh, cover of the book, uh, ideas have consequences. Uh, that's, that's the same kind of thinking about fruits, uh, that that's how you judge an idea. And there are a number of, uh, of uh, quotes in the book from George McCurdy Price and others that are striking in that they, they explicitly say that the most effective way to, to evaluate the claims of evolutionary science is not by looking at evidence from the natural world, not by judging them based on a scientific standard, but simply to see how they affect the way we act in our daily lives, what they may lead you to do, that's the most effective way to judge them. That is, as Henry Morris later put it, apply the fruit test uh, and see what the fruits of these kinds of ideas are. And so I, uh, the, 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 the one single new term uh, that I have introduced in the book is to describe this way of thinking as fruitistic. It may be I'm the first and last one to use this phrase, but I, I thought it was a handy way to sum up that uh, way of thinking. So we'll talk a bit about red fruits. You've already mentioned that there was this evolutionary socialist Marxist imbrication. And in some sense, while that was exaggerated by red dynamite proponents, that was also in a sense true. Uh, so can you elaborate on the Marxist-Socialist connection to evolutionary thought in the early 20th century. Yeah, I mean, Marx and Engels, to begin with, the founders of the modern communist movement, were huge fans of Charles Darwin. I mean, they wrote him directly and thanked him. They, Marx sent Darwin an inscribed copy of the first volume of Das Kapital, they, Marx and Engels wrote each other about this. Uh, they saw Darwin as providing validation for their view of the history of society um, in the way that Darwin provided what they saw as a materialist explanation for natural history, even if the mechanisms were somewhat different. We're not talking about class struggle as the motor of history, but we are talking about natural selection the struggle for survival and all the things that follow from it as the motor of natural history. And so you have Marx and Engels uh, endorsing Darwin. And then uh, following from that, you have several generations of socialists and communists, including Lenin, Trotsky, as I document in the book, other Bolshevik leaders, and then their uh, allies, supporters, followers in the United States and, and in other countries where these movements uh, sprang up in the early 20th century. Uh, so there's a reality to this claim that communism and evolution are connected in some way. I mean, there are a lot of different aspects to this. I mean, one of my, one of my favorites is that the first popular 
magazine in the United States dedicated to supporting evolutionary science called Evolution, a Journal of Nature, was edited and, and founded by a man named Ludwig Katterfeld, who uh, was a central leader of the U.S. communist movement in the early 1920s. Uh, that's really saying something. This was a small group of people who had broken off from the Socialist Party in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution and who were inspired by the example of the, 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 the Bolsheviks. Um, and um, he was high up in the party. He went to Moscow to confer with Lenin and Trotsky and uh, was in their, their inner, inner circle. Um, he understood how important evolutionary science was and founded this, this little magazine, which persisted for, for a number of years. And in fact, when he retired, Time Magazine even wrote uh, a little piece uh, noting uh, the work that Catterfeld had done, not noting, by the way, that he was a communist or had been a communist. Uh, but uh, I, I think the fact that, that, that he was is significant here. Um, you, you wouldn't know it either by reading a, the a magazine, but he had really esteemed uh, scientific authorities writing for him, people like David Starr Jordan, uh, the, the famed ichthyologist and uh, president of Stanford University, and, 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 and people like that who are willing to, to write for the, um, uh, for, for the publication. Um, so that's, that's just one example. There, there, there are plenty more in the book. So along with Price, who were the other main proponents of red dynamite or red-baiting creationism in the 1920s? Well, in the 1920s, there are a number. William Bell Riley is the one who comes most immediately to mind, uh, born in Greene County, Indiana, actually a hop, skip, and a jump from where I'm sitting right now, uh, just west of Bloomington, Indiana, but very early on moved back to Kentucky where his father was from and then eventually finds himself after graduating from Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville he ends up in Minneapolis Minnesota and he's pastoring the first Baptist church there the the most um, established well-regarded church in almost any city uh, of the Baptist denomination and uh, he's there for many years. He starts a Northwestern Bible school, as it's called, and it establishes a kind of dynasty for him, training generations of, uh, of, of preachers who, who, who fan out throughout the Midwest. So Riley began as, um, um, as a fairly mainstream evangelical Baptist, but um, in the uh, World War I period was one of those who uh, was alarmed by what were considered modernist teachings among some Baptist ministers. And he's one of the founders of the fundamentalist movement, the, the World Christian Fundamentals Association. He was one of the central founders of it. He organized their conferences. Uh, and uh, in fact, that group mobilized public support for legislation like the Butler Act in Tennessee that was the uh, basis of the Scopes trial. So Riley is connected to uh, Scopes in a very direct way. And so um, in the early 1920s, Riley, who I'm fairly sure did read George McCready Price's stuff and, um, and followed a number of his leads uh, making these arguments about, <clears throat> about evolution and communism and so on, Riley, uh, in his own fundamentalist journal, 
made similar arguments, uh, preached in Minneapolis along these lines. I'm happy to say I was able to uh, gain access to his sermons from that period, which are preserved in his papers up there in the school that's the descendant of that Bible Institute in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, yeah, they're, they're rather remarkable. I mean, he was a, he was a, an extremely bright, articulate, polished kind of speaker uh, who, who, who carried a lot of authority. Um, the, 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 his story turns quite a bit darker in certain ways in a later chapter where we, we see that um, he, he um, not only makes these arguments, but then links them to the claim of an international Jewish conspiracy. And he ends up, in fact, uh, an open sympathizer with Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Um, making similar arguments were people like um, J. Frank Norris, uh, who was in, in, in effect the Southern counterpart of, of William Bell Riley, Norris born in Alabama, and then he, uh, he ends up uh, establishing himself similarly pastoring a First Baptist Church, but in Fort Worth, Texas. He's more of a populist, uh, more of a tough guy, a character who actually shoots one of his political enemies in his church office, an unarmed man, by the way, goes on trial and is acquitted of murder. And he has gone down in history as the shooting parson, among other nicknames. Quite a colorful character who, uh, despite those kinds of charges, was quite popular. Some historians suggested because of those uh, charges, um, he, he attracted you know, quite a bit of attention. In, in, in the epilogue of the book, I actually connect him to the Trump phenomenon, because I think there's some really interesting parallels between Trump, his uh, evangelical supporters, and uh, Norris's style, uh, which uh, I, I cover pretty extensively in that chapter. And so Norris is making some similar arguments, uh, again, about evolution and creationism and um, evolutionism in, in, a, in a somewhat different way than, um, than Riley, but making the same kind of argument. I mean, there are other people. Gerald Winrod is probably the other one worth mentioning from Kansas. He uh, has a similar kind of very polished uh, uh, approach uh, that uh, Riley did. In fact, when I was researching uh, uh, Winrod in Kansas, I had the opportunity to listen to some of his, uh, his sermons on, on LPs, uh, which were amazingly uh, preserved. And, and uh, although a lot of people who, a lot of progressive-minded people, probably think that Winrod was a complete loon. Uh, in fact, he was a very bright guy and, uh, you know, his whole method, his whole style of delivery, uh, sounded utterly, he made these ideas sound utterly reasonable and intelligent and, and so on. Uh, but, but he made very similar arguments about, um, uh, about, um, evolution and communism, uh, very much bringing in uh, the Book of Revelation, um, the 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 Red Steed uh, from uh, the Four you know, Horsemen of the Apocalypse that he associated uh, with Russia and uh, the the immoralities of Russia. One of those, by the way, is the charge that I, I I talk about in the first chapter that Russia had set up a bureau of free love under the Bolsheviks. That is, they had not only nationalized the economy of big companies and land, but they had nationalized Russian women who were now collective property of the men of Russia. Well, uh, this is made up. It's an early example of fake news, uh, but, um, but um, Widrod made the most of it uh, and similar kinds of stories. He was particularly concerned about the effect of evolutionary teachings 
on on young people, on students, and so uh, he preached quite a bit about that. Those are some of the people uh, that I talk about in that chapter on the twenties. Yeah, and I'm I'm struck by how not adamantly capitalistic these early figures are. Price and Riley and others, they they reject socialism, but they recognize, and this, this continues even with Morris, you mentioned, they recognize the faults of capitalism or the evolutionary tendencies that capitalism can sometimes express. Yeah, indeed. I mean, there's a populist current that runs through a number of these people, um, cert- cert- certainly uh, Norris. Uh, and um, I mean, frankly, if you want to think about the phenomenon of fascism, which I really don't address directly in the book, you see that same mix in Hitler himself, in Mussolini and others. That is, they present themselves as representing the masses who are oppressed uh, by uh, this elite, uh, which, of course, especially in the German case, are the elite is identified with Jews uh, as if there are no Christian employers and, and factory owners and bankers and so on. Um, and so, uh, so I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and, and I was struck um, in, in, in a later chapter, you can even read an uh, almost extreme example of this, Jerry Bergman, who's a, who's a intellectual who's written quite a bit in recent years to support these continuing claims by the Institute for Creation Research or Answers in Genesis, Bergman actually wrote a piece fairly recently, I don't know, in the last 20 years, where he is linking evolution to what he calls social Darwinism, that is Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, and folks like that, you, who used Darwin's ideas to justify the unequal division of wealth or to justify the fact that they were immensely wealthy. In writing about this, uh, this um, what he calls like predatory laissez-faire capitalism, he actually cites in support Howard Zinn's A People His- People's History of the United States, which is just amazing in that, of course, Zinn has been vilified in recent years as a communist and, and socialist, and there's, there's certainly some truth to those claims. And yet here is a conservative creationist using Zinn against Darwin I don't think it's serious, um, but if you don't if, if you don't really know the background to this, you might think somehow that Jerry Bergman and Henry Morris and some of these creationists were somehow jumping on the left wing bandwagon. The key thing is they they talk about laissez faire capitalism, but they never explain a ruthless laissez faire laissez faire capitalism. They never explain what unruthless capitalism looks like, um, which essentially. Uh, is it is 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 a sign that they're actually not making an anti-capitalist argument, but but it surely can be confusing um, if you're not hip to this background. Equal time, not only to science and evolution, but to left and right politics. It seems so. As we move from the twenties to the thirties, you you talk about how how red dynamite creationism is not only ecumenical, but it's also uh, egalitarian. There are both men and women in the 1930s promoting red dynamite creationism. Absolutely. So the best known case is Amy Semple McPherson, uh, who founds her own church, the Church of the Foursquare Gospel. I mean, she's been called, in fact, the most 
famous minister of her era, uh, no holds barred, men or women. Uh, and, uh, and she was uh, quite the character, uh, established her, her dynasty out in Los Angeles. Um, and, um, and, and, and she uh, also was unique in that she publicly debated, uh, she, excuse me, she publicly debated uh, evolutionists on the stage. And um, she had a giant cutout figure of a gorilla that she would carry around with her and confront the gorilla on stage. And uh, she was uh, best known uh, for these uh, gigantic historical, political, religious pageants uh, that she would uh, stage at the Angelus Temple uh, in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, and one of them that I talk about in the book does um, does dramatize uh, this claim of red dynamite, where essentially Satan is planting these explosive charges under under the church and under uh, the school and uh, the uh, the the home uh, to 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 blow it apart. Uh, there's a there's a cartoon that I unfortunately was not able to get permission to use, but I describe in the book too that shows what looks like a uh, an octopus spreading its tentacles uh, from the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, it looks a little bit like a Lenin sort of character with your 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 classic Lenin hat spreading its tentacles through uh, the American. Uh, legislatures and homes and churches, and those tentacles include, uh, uh, some of them are labeled evolution. And so she is also making, she's connecting these kinds of claims. She's connecting the dots for her, her, her followers. I mean, she was unusual also in that she was a New Deal Democrat for most of the time uh, that we're talking about here. And so it's difficult to pigeonhole um, all of these characters politically. They don't all, all exactly line up. Although, interestingly enough, she also allied uh, with Gerald Winrod, uh, who I mentioned earlier. And as if you read the book, you you see that Winrod, like Riley, also glommed onto this conspiracy theory claim uh, laid out in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion uh, that uh, claimed that Jews were behind all the evils of the world, including Marxism and Darwinism. Amazingly enough, uh, and I did not know this before I did the book research, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which has been around for over 100 years now, explicitly blames Jews for foisting Darwinism on the, the Gentile masses to, to, to demoralize them and make them more susceptible to take over by some uh, Jewish ruler. Uh, so uh, so uh, McPherson allied uh, with a Winrod, who was at that time in the 1930s, um, his opponents called him the Jayhawk Nazi, the Nazi from, from Kansas. Uh, in, but in any event, uh, yeah, so McPherson, as I, as I say in the book, even though she didn't write uh, at great length about evolution and communism in the same way that, that Price and some of these other folks did, but I bet in some ways she reached more people with this basic message than some of them did just because of her uh, her following and her ability to stage these spectacles that were accessible to ordinary people in a way that some of these other writings and sermons might not be. So speaking of amazing spectacles and preaching, we move into the 40s where we see two important protégés of Riley uh, and Rye, uh, excuse me, and Norris, 
John Rice and Billy Graham. How did those two figures in the in the kind of 40s and 50s emphasize red dynamite political logic and also anti-Semitism, uh, anti-communism, etc.? Yeah, John Rice is a really unrecognized figure uh, in this history that certainly specialists in the history of American evangelicalism know about, but more broadly, he's just not well known. And part of the reason is, I think, because he was so far to the right that um, that a lot of people don't want to talk about Rice and how influential he was. But um, as you say, he was a protege of J. Frank Norris. Rice is from Texas and and Norris took him under his wing and gave him airtime on his radio show and in his newspaper and in his church. Um, they had a falling out uh, pretty early on uh, where Norris essentially got jealous of uh, Rice's uh, growing influence and uh, Rice soon broke from uh, Norris and they remained enemies the rest of their lives. Um, Rice became best known as the editor of a fundamentalist newspaper called Sword of the Lord. And um, I, I really enjoyed reading uh, that newspaper. Rice was, I mean, as I said, ultra conservative in a number of ways. Um, and uh, I mean, not only was he a diehard anti-communist and uh, anti-evolutionist, he also maintained really sexist, deeply sexist ideas about uh, the role of women uh, in the home and in the church. I had the opportunity to read correspondence uh, with Rice. I, I just couldn't include uh, this in the book because it was just there was just too much. But I mean, women would write to him about uh, the uh, what about their their violent, abusive husbands, and Rice essentially would say, "There's nothing you can do about that. You know, you're you're obligated to obey and honor your husband as a good Christian woman." Um, uh, but Rice. Uh, had this platform in uh, The Sword of the Lord, and so he uh, did run uh, any number of articles about uh, the evils of evolution, about the, the claim that evolution uh, was a lie. And um, by the 1950s, uh, he was connecting the dots himself. Uh, so he gave a sermon at the Highland Park Baptist Church uh, in, in Chattanooga uh, that they that Sword of the Lord published as a pamphlet. Uh, they they actually had their own publishing operation, uh, published books and pamphlets. It was called Dangerous Triplets, and it uh, linked together the dangers of, of modernism, uh, New Dealism, and communism, and evolution was implicated in that in, in the sermon, and it was actually, it was given in, the sermon was given in 1954, um, shortly after the execution of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg uh, for allegedly uh, sharing atomic secrets with the Soviets, and um, Rice took aim at those Christians who he thought were, in effect, giving comfort to the enemy, uh, who were who were calling themselves Christian uh, people, but in fact uh, were selling out uh, to uh, this modernist liberal version of Christianity, uh, which uh, was not true Christianity. And and in fact, he compared uh, people like that. To, to traitors, uh, to, he didn't name the Rosenbergs, but it was fairly obvious what he was talking about. It was this intense message. And, and a lot of the book, in fact, looks at these battles within uh, the church. It's not simply a matter of Christian versus atheist. In fact, it's usually Christian versus Christian. That goes back to the fundamentalist movement, which was founded 
because of a split among uh, among various kinds of Christians. So uh, that, that's a bit about Rice. Uh, again, a fascinating character. Later in the book, um, he reappears uh, because uh, one of his protégés, as it turns out, was Jerry Falwell. Uh, also, this has certainly been noted by uh, scholars, but uh, insufficiently appreciated. And um, um, and there's there's an interesting story there. So um, you mentioned Billy Graham. So indeed, uh, Graham is not um, a central figure in the book in the same way that William Bell Riley and J. Frank Norris are. But of course, since he's the most famous preacher, perhaps, in uh, of the 20th century, and you know, is is claimed to have reached more people with his sermons uh, in the course of his very long life, almost lived to to be a hundred, uh, than anyone else, perhaps, in American history. Yeah, he's worth uh, he, he he's very much worth including. And I, I could just say a couple of things. Um, he attended Wheaton College, and uh, John Rice at that point was running sort of Lord in Wheaton. And uh, so, uh, in fact, Rice, uh, Graham was, uh, for a time, a protege of John Rice. And, in fact, Rice invited him to speak at Sword of the Lord conferences, uh, ran his sermons in the newspaper, um, and really uh, gave him uh, a, a lot of support. Um, a key turning point in, in the book that involves Rice and Graham is uh, a conflict they had over a book by Bernard Rahm. Um, who, uh, who wrote a book um, um, on science and scripture uh, in the early 1950s that made the argument uh, that one could believe in some form of evolution and an old earth and still be a Christian, tried to harmonize science and scripture in a way that more and more Christians were doing, but with, but with which John Rice uh, was just horrified by it. And um, at the same time, um, Billy Graham, in an article listed among the books that he most, uh, uh, um, that he was most fond of and influenced him, he, he mentioned Ram's book. And uh, this started a, a, created a crack in their relationship, which eventually led to a complete split. And, and this was played out in the pages of The Sword of the Lord, and, uh, you know, up to that point, uh, Billy Graham, certainly uh, in his early years of association with John Rice, was an anti-communist and was certainly an anti-evolutionist as well. After that split, he, it seems anyhow that he pretty much dropped that, evolu- that opposition to evolution that he had embraced in uh, the uh, early years. Um, and, and John Rice made a very open break with Graham. So Graham becomes this international figure in the 1950s. Simultaneously, in 1957, we have Sputnik. We have the Cold War, which is simultaneously uh, a race of scientific advancement in both East and West. And amongst this, there's changes in evolutionary teaching in public schools. And then in 1961, I believe, two men drop a bombshell in this scientific creationist movement called the Genesis Flood. John Whitcomb and Henry Morris. Who were these two figures and how important is the Genesis flood to scientific creationism and red dynamite? Yeah, that book is essential to understanding how we've gotten to where we are today, that there is a creation museum, a multi-million dollar creation museum in Petersburg, Kentucky, that there's 
an Ark encounter, a life-size so-called replica of Noah's Ark in Williamstown, Kentucky. All of that goes back to the Genesis Flood, published, as you said, in 1961. Um, Henry Morris was a native of Texas and uh, began by his own account as a theistic evolutionist uh, and somebody who was scientifically minded, went to uh, graduate school for engineering, for civil engineering um, at University of Minnesota after his initial education in Texas and and, um, started an academic career. At one point, he was the head of the civil engineering department at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. Uh, But um, he came under the influence of George McCready Price and others, and uh, started thinking about things uh, even even earlier uh, in his uh, career. And um, he uh, was influenced uh, as well by a, a dissertation uh, done uh, by John Whitcomb, who was then uh, a student at, at Grace Seminary uh, in northern Indiana. Um, and uh, in fact, it was uh, Whitcomb's PhD dissertation in Divinity School called the Genesis Flood that became the basis uh, for the book. And Whitcomb, similarly, he had gone to Princeton, had been a kind of Sunday Christian and uh, a theistic evolutionist, uh, but, but in a different kind of way at Princeton, a whole, there was a whole other uh, conservative uh, Presbyterian tradition that, he, that influenced him. Uh, and, and he also arrived at a, a similar place, that is, uh, a believer in a young earth uh, and uh, a desire to defend uh, this fundamentalist account, especially in reaction to Bernard Graham. And it's worth noting, by the way, by way of background, that the mid-1950s are a time when this trend that Billy Graham represents becomes crystallized in the publication Christianity Today, uh, still around uh, these days, but then was seen as a real, uh, seen as a real break, uh, as attempting to consciously make a break from fundamentalists. Um, and so sometimes this group of people were, were called the neo-evangelicals. Uh, they were looking to shed some of their uh, more conservative and to many people distasteful past. And so, um, and so there were people like Whitcomb who were striking back against that trend and were looking to, to stick with what they thought were the real fundamentals of the faith. And so these two uh, collaborated eventually on creating uh, this book. In fact, the book turned out very different from the way that Whitcomb uh, originally wrote it as, as a PhD dissertation. There was virtually no science in it whatsoever. Uh, Morris provided at least uh, the appearance that this was a scientific book. Uh, there were facts and figures and equations about the, uh, the carrying capacity of the arc and, and, and things like that. Um, now, uh, this book's been around for you know, over half a century, and uh, as far as I know, nobody had ever really paid attention to the political message of the book. Uh, but in, indeed, if you look at the very, almost at the very end of the book, they have a section uh, tellingly entitled uh, The Importance of the Question. <laughs> and it essentially is making the argument for, okay, you've gone through this book and you've learned all these details about how it's possible that the earth was created in six days and there are all kinds of details about things like the vapor canopy and, again, the size of the ark and how long it rained for and all these kinds of things. But then they are essentially are saying, look, in their own words, they're saying, look, maybe you don't care about this, but you should care about this. <laughs> and what you should care about is that 
the the question of whether the Earth is billions of years old or six thousand years old, the reason that matters is because it affects the way people conduct themselves in the world, and it affects the way we teach our children about society and about psychology and about politics. And, you know, the biggest promoters of evolutionary science are the communists, which in 1961 appeared to be this extremely powerful force taking over the world, right? That was the that was the the sense that conservatives had in at, at the height of the Cold War. Then was that America was losing, the free world was losing, the Soviets were gaining, and and so uh, they so Wickham and Riley linked the uh, the the dangers of evolution to uh, the threat of communism very explicitly in the Genesis Flood. Uh- that book is fascinating because you mentioned that there's these two voices. There's Whitcomb, who is the presuppositionalist, right? Who says, okay, you have to have these presuppositions in order to actually know what true facts are in order to come to the correct interpretation of reality. And then Morris, who's the evidentialist. Uh, and so you read the book and you you start to think, well, they're, ha- they're having their cake and they're eating it too, right? The book is already true before you open page one, but here's all this additional evidence to, to show that it's even more true. <laughs> so that's I, right. They're, that's right. They're, they're very different approaches and they're contradictory in some ways. That is, if you, if you believe that the only legitimate starting point is to accept the, the full truth of the Bible as the inerrant word of God, and that that is the only potential foundation to reach the truth, then why do you need any evidence? Why does it matter exactly how long the ark was? Why does it matter uh, whether it's feasible that all the different animals got on the ark? That shouldn't really matter. Um, And uh, indeed, that presuppositional argument uh, that Whitcomb embraces very explicitly, it's a very appealing argument, and you can see why many Christians still today are drawn to it um, because it, it it provides what at least appears to be a, a deep philosophical epistemological right a theory of knowledge that that seems un unassailable it's 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 um, it's airtight uh, because it's all about what your initial assumptions are. And of course, it's true that initial presuppositions do shape the way we see reality. That's, that's, that's undeniable. Uh, of course, the question is, what justifies your choice of initial presuppositions? But in his dissertation, as I said, Whitcomb just very directly said, I'm just going to assume the Bible's true. And, and of course, Morris came along and said, okay, I agree, but you know, that's not going to be very persuasive to people who don't already totally agree with you. And so we need to throw some science in. And that's that kind of bifurcated philosophical tradition is still evident in Answers in Genesis. You'll read articles from them that say, well, we are presuppositionalists, no need for reason. And then other, you know, obviously all of these articles explaining the scientific validity of creationism. So another major advocate of presuppositionalist thought was R.J. Rushduni. And I'm, I'm happy you mentioned him. I'm a, a scholar of him. How did creationism continue 
in the 1960s with Rush Uni, Reconstructionism, and then in the 70s with other Reconstructionists and moral majority types like D. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge, and as we've already mentioned, the late, not-so-great Jerry Falwell. Yeah, Rush Dooney is certainly uh, an interesting character and uh, an intensely controversial one since, as you say, he's known primarily for this uh, approach to Christian theology and politics of Reconstructionism and this idea that we need to return to uh, the original conception of Christian justice, which could include stoning uh, people for various for adultery and homosexuality and and various crimes, and he's gone down as uh, again kind of a crazy guy uh, because he embraced some of those ideas. Um, uh, in his case, uh, coming out of a, a Calvinist uh, tradition, and um, but but Rush Dooney nearly became a Christian academic. I mean, he went to graduate school. He uh, studied at University of Chicago. He uh, was was a serious thinker. Uh, who ended up uh, helping provide a, a kind of academic um, rigor to the philosophical uh, defenses that creationists would make of their uh, perspective, and so, and and uh, in fact, um, it's I believe Ron Num- historian Ron Numbers is the one who 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 noted that when the Genesis flood was published, uh, it was published in part thanks to a uh, an initial review from Rush Dooney, who, who recommended that the, that particular press publish, publish the book. But then Rush Dooney went on to write for the Creation Science Research Quarterly, which was the, the initial organizational uh, form that uh, Morris and Whitcomb's creation science venture took. Eventually, it became the Institute for Creation Research in the early 1970s. But during the 60s, it was this you know, fairly obscure, academic-y kind of journal, but Rush Dooney wrote for them, uh, wrote reviews for them. I In the book, I I uh, cite a review that Rush Dooney wrote about a film strip uh, that was uh, an early version of using advanced technology to teach about the dangers of creationism and, uh, and uh, in fact, excuse me, the dangers of evolutionism and, and it's linked to communism as well. And this is something that Rush Dooney explicitly uh, wrote about um, and, um, and, 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 and promoted. And Rush Dooney also was involved in advancing the cause of homeschooling um, and providing a philosophical legal defense for this. And, and of course, uh, homeschooling has exploded in recent years, and it's been a very important place for the spread of, uh, of creationist teaching, creationist literature, a creationist curriculum materials. And so he is uh, an important figure in that respect too. Uh, no doubt. So uh, to also speak on Kennedy and Schaefer, uh, Francis Schaefer, another important figure of this time, and Falwell, there's this rhetorical move that happens in the late 70s where communism, as you say, kind of goes out of vogue in red dynamite language and this new term, uh, which which is still employed all the time called secular humanism. So what, how does red dynamite change with this 
lingu- this terminological difference? How is it the same? And who are the main proponents of fighting back against right the secular humanist agenda, the 70s, 80s, and 90s? Yeah, so I do, I do think that um, Falwell is important for sure. I, I think that in a way, the, the, the one leading the charge even more than Falwell is Tim LaHaye. And, and LaHaye joined with Henry Morris in late 60s to bring about the founding of a Christian college, Christian Heritage College um, in the suburbs of San Diego. And LaHaye had a, a background as a Christian prophecy uh, specialist, uh, as a Christian counseling specialist, in fact, and not um, as somebody who uh, was spending any time uh, studying uh, evolutionary science or or creation science, its response to evolution. And so uh, he was a very different kind of character than Henry Morris. Uh, but as it turns out, uh, he was a good match because uh, he had a sense for pitching conservative Christianity to the masses, for pitching creationism to the masses. Um, they started Christian Heritage College uh, in, in the early 1970s. It became the home of the Institute for Creation Research. Of course, Tim LaHaye was, became famous later on as the co-author of the Left Behind novels, uh, which then spawned several different movies, read by tens of millions uh, of people. Um, laying out um, a, a premillennial dispensationalist view of the end times uh, and um, you know, cementing LaHaye as a real fixture uh, of conservative Christianity in this country and really around the world. Um, and so LaHaye, in a, in a series of books, The Bat- Battle for the Mind, um, um, Battle for the Public Schools, made this case that it was a secular humanism that Christians needed to do battle with, and um, and that um, it posed as 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 great a threat as as communism had. In, in in effect, was just another word for for communism. And in fact, I show in the book that there there are people who are uh, writing and speaking about these things who don't really necessarily distinguish between the two. There's a continuity between the kinds of arguments that are being made about secular humanism and about communism. And, and, and in addition to LaHaye, of course, Francis Schaeffer is the other, the key person. And really, he was the intellectual uh, who, uh, who initially, in the Christian Manifesto and some other books, made this argument. And, and in fact, uh, it's, it's, to me, significant that if you look at the, the title page or the, one of the early uh, uh, front pages of the book, he actually uh, shows, he, he displays on the page uh, the, uh, the, the genealogy of, of, of how we get from communism to secular humanism. So he, he uh, writes the Communist Manifesto, then the secular human, the humanist manifesto, there are a couple of different ones, um, and, 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 and showing how they're related. And then, of course, his answer then is the Christian Manifesto. Uh, and so... Um, uh, and, and there's some other people that we haven't talked about yet. Um, David Noble is one um, who is actually operating in some ways behind the scenes, uh, less of a public figure than, uh, than Francis Schaeffer is, uh, but, but making very 
similar arguments, you know, well past the end of the Cold War. So if, if, if you were to think that these arguments about communism would somehow just disappear when the Soviet Union implodes in December 1991, you, you'd be gravely mistaken um, that they, they, they very much continue. And I mean, of course, if you just look around uh, the American political scene today, uh, anti-communism and anti-socialism are, are alive and well. Um, so uh, that in itself ought to tell you something. But 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 Schaefer, Noble, uh, LaHaye, and others were definitely pushing this concept of secular humanism, and um, and 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 uh, and I'd say very successfully. Well, much like Tim LaHaye, you're prophetically seeing my future questions. I was about to ask, how does red dynamite creationism and scientific creationism change with the fall of the Soviet Union? You mentioned there's a new movement or a new theory called intelligent design, which actually shares a lot of the similar political commitments as uh, scientific creationism, red dynamite. It, it does. Uh, and that's not been well recognized, I think. Of course, uh, intelligent design has been much written about and debated and um, been the subject of a number of uh, uh, very prominent legal battles, uh, probably the best known being the um, the, the Dover case. Uh, and um, um, so... The idea of intelligent design, according to its promoters, if you were listen, if you were to listen to Stephen Meyer and and and, and others, um, who I who I quote in the book, intelligent design doesn't even necessarily have any connection with religion. It doesn't require a supreme being. It doesn't require a notion of the supernatural. In reality, of course, uh, intelligent design comes directly out of the predicament of the creationist movement in the 70s and 80s, which is facing increasing legal obstacles. And the, 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 the final blow is the Edwards versus Aguilar case of 1987, where the U.S. Supreme Court now finally says you cannot teach creation science in a science classroom. It's not science, it's religion. And so creationists are then faced with the challenge of how are we going to forge ahead? How are we going to continue? What are we going to call for? And they had already, of course, at that point, been calling for these equal time laws. Okay, well, we're not going to try to ban evolution, but we're going to teach some evolution. We're going to teach some creation science and um, let the people decide. Sounds very democratic and, and reasonable. Um, create And intelligence design comes out of this. Intelligence design makes the a very old argument that William Paley made in 1802 in his book Natural Theology that nature is so amazingly intricate and apparently designed that it, it could not have evolved. Uh, that is uh, the the poster child for this, of course, in the hands of intelligent designers became the bacterial flagellum, which is this remarkable mechanism where uh, 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 a uh, a, a bacterium uh, can propel itself through liquid in uh, your body or an animal's body with uh, something that looks like a propeller. And there are, in fact, um, substructures of this thing that look very much like gears. And you look at you look at how intricate this is, 
and you say to yourself, there's just no way nature came up with this uh, by itself. Someone had to have designed this. And, and, and the, the key idea, of course, is that if natural selection, if evolution as Darwin explained it, had created it, he would have had to have evolved uh, bit by bit, bit by tiny bit over long periods of time. Well, how could that have worked? Because how, how could you have like a teeny bit of a gear? What, what could that possibly do? How could that possibly work? This couldn't happen by this slight addition of small changes over, over time. So this seemed to just blow Darwinism out of the water in the eyes of intelligence design advocates. Well, all this sounds very scientific. And I must say, when I first encountered intelligent design arguments, uh, before I started teaching and writing about this stuff, I, I, I shuddered. <laughs> I had this sense like, wow, they've, they've really figured it out. Like, maybe Darwin is wrong. Well, I no longer think that. Um, but that speaks to the fact that the way intelligent design arguments tend to come across is in this, in, in this way, that they're, they're simply looking at the science. Okay. So what I irreducible do complexity, irreducible complexity is the term, right? Irreducible yeah. complexity is their, is their, their, their phrase that describes what they're pointing out here with the bacterial flagellum and their other examples of that. So, um, what, uh, what, what I point out in the book is that if you look at their writings, uh, in a number of places, uh, one obvious place to look is the so-called wedge document, which was a fundraising document initially, um, not meant to be public, but then it was leaked. And initially they said, no, this is, doesn't represent anything. And finally said, well, yeah, we did do this and we're, we're not ashamed of it. They very directly in that document uh, make the argument that what they're, uh, what they're um, looking to defeat is what they call the legacies of materialism. Um, and they explicitly identify Marx, Darwin, and Freud as pillars of this way of thinking and they're essentially making a political argument about um, how uh, Darwin and his uh, heirs and successors and ideas have made the world a worse place. And they're going to make a wor- the world a better place by, by defeating uh, this way of thinking and institutions and social practices. Uh, they're going to change the world to make it better. That's a political argument. I and mean, whether you accept it or not, you have to recognize that. And there are other, there are other uh, folks involved in intelligent design who, who contribute to that, um, that, that, political, uh, that, that political message. Uh, Jay Richards did a book basically uh, arguing about how capitalism is, uh, is, is a good thing and, I mean, explicitly taking on. So the idea that, the idea that um, intelligent design is the scientific idea that's got nothing to do with religion and certainly nothing to do with politics – uh, is really hard to to accept, and of course the Kitzmiller case from Dover, Pennsylvania, uh, that I mentioned uh, in 2005, the the, the decision uh, that came down, um, very clearly shows a continuity between between scientific creationism and uh, intelligent design, and, and most famously Barbara Forrest, the anthropologist who poured through early drafts of this book of Pandas and People, that was at the center of the case. She found that they had done a search and replace on uh, creationist and replaced the word creations with design proponent uh, in every. Pl- that's how they did it, Microsoft Word. Uh, but in one place, that 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 replacement misfired, so you ended up with this strange transitional species uh, uh, of a phrase that had the word like "see design proponentists." Uh, they 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 plopped 
design proponent right down in the middle of the word creationists. In any case, uh, there was a wonderful smoking gun bit of evidence. So, I mean, those are some of the things that, that I get into in regard to intelligent design. Yes, the, the book is just absolutely chock full of so many figures uh, that we, we don't have time to talk about. Dan Gilbert and Stephen Jay Gould, the, uh, who learned communism from his father's knee. But as we, for one final question, the content of the book, Scientific Creationism Today, probably the leading ex- well, expert, quotation marks, on this, leading proponent, is Ken Ham. Who is Ken Ham? Uh, his, his institution, Answers in Genesis, Creation Museum, and how does Ken Ham continue the red, the red Dynamite legacy? Yeah, Ken Ham is uh, Australian. He grew up in Queensland, Australia at a time when it was legal to teach creationism in the schools down there and was a science teacher, was trained as a science teacher and began teaching in the schools, but also was raised in a conservative Christian household and very soon got interested in promoting creation science along the lines that Henry Morris and John Whitcomb were were doing. And um, and there were links between the Australian movement and the American movement. He eventually comes to the U.S. in the 1980s and works for Henry Morris's Institute for Creation Research and, of course, in the early 90s, breaks off and forms his own organization, Answers in Genesis, which then brings us the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter and, and probably more to come. Um, he's really left his parent organization in the dust because Answers Genesis is, is just reaching far more people than Institute for uh, Creation Research. Now, on the surface, if you go to the bookstore at the Creation Museum and especially at Ark Encounter, it's going to be hard to find any evidence that the creation movement has ever linked creationism has ever linked evolutionism and communism. There's virtually no sign of it. Um, But the connection is still there. And I think that what's happened is because of the shift to secular humanism that we talked about earlier in the 70s and 80s, and because there are aspects of the anti-communist tradition that have just um, uh, have acquired a really sour taste in uh, people's political palate, that Ham has made a clear decision to downplay this aspect of their legacy. Uh, People associate anti-communism with McCarthyism, with intolerance, and and other things like that. And so uh, they soft pedal it, but it's still there. Um, So uh, for instance, they have a pocket book. um, They have a uh, a whole series of teeny little books they sell for a few bucks in their bookstore. One is on atheism. And if you open it up and start reading, you'll see uh, that, in fact, uh, there are very direct charges that evolution and communism are allied and that um, that uh, that Soviet leaders and also Pol Pot and Mao Zedong and and other communists from different parts of the world um, are uh, have been uh, evolutionists and have been promoting um, all sorts of evil activities, which um, then are um, responsible for mo- most of the death and destruction in the world that has happened. That is all the world wars, the Vietnam War, the Russian Revolution, and all these kinds of things can be, in fact, tied to evolutionism, as, uh, as can be 
um, the millions and millions of abortions uh, that have happened in uh, the uh, 20th and early 21st century. And uh, so there's a continuing effort to show how if you teach people they're descended from animals, they'll act like animals. There's a continuing effort to make this fruitistic kind of argument that the way we judge evolution is by what it makes people do, by what kind of consequences happen uh, in the world. And I guess the most, in, in a way, the most recent um, evidence of this connection being made by Answers in Genesis was a letter that Ken Ham sent out uh, or a, an article that they published on their site um, a couple of years ago reporting on a National Education Association meeting where people were really fired up about empowering teachers and about various social issues, including the problem of police brutality. It was following the murder of George Floyd. And the uh, the report on this convention, they showed up, by the way, they, they have supporters who are public school teachers, and they had a table at the convention, and they talked to teachers. And uh, the uh, article talked about how the uh, this uh, the atmosphere at the at the convention was dark and disturbing, and they uh, pointed out explicitly that um, there was a strong influence of, of socialism, of Marxism, that Marxism is tied to, uh, to evolutionary ideas, and they didn't have to say this, but there was also a clear implication that all of this was connected to the influence of the great deceiver, Satan. And so there's a continuing effort to, to link evolutionism communism, immorality, and satanic influence, in fact, um, in the face of real political, social battles that are playing out in the streets today in this country. And so they're downplaying the red dynamite aspect of this, but I would say it's still uh, very much there. Yes, there's the famous or infamous, rather, poster at the original ICR museum that says Karl Marx founder of communism, alleged Satanist in, uh, in college. So how, how uh, Satanism is, and I think there's also another, another early evolutionist figure who, ha, uh, who Morris connects to Satanism because he discovered national, natural selection through the spirits or something like this. So you're completely correct. Uh, the red dynamite logic is not merely anti-communism. It's also connecting back to Satanism and other forms of gross, supposedly gross immorality. Well, thank you so much, Carl, for your time. Uh, one final question outside of the book before we end is what future projects do you have in store? Are you going to continue working on scientific creationism, labor history, etc.? That's a great question. Right now, I'm just enjoying being done with the book. I will say that I have created an author website. It's carlrweinberg.com. And one thing I've done there is I have published on the site some bits uh, of material that I was not able to put in the book because you just can't fit everything in. I'm calling them deleted scenes. And uh, there's some fun stuff on there uh, to read, including a story about Alfred Nobel, the inventor of actual dynamite, and his surprising connection uh, to this story. So I, I do intend to add some things uh, in, you know, in the coming period to the site, but I would definitely encourage people to, to, to check that out. Yes, and I will link that in the blog post to the podcast. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. My name is Jackson Reinhardt, and you've been listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel in the New Books Network. Goodbye.